It's the year 2000, and the Campbell's Soup Company, one of the most iconic brands of the century, isn't doing so well. Net earnings have been stagnant, and there is little product innovation happening to suggest things will look any different going forward. Meanwhile, one in three Campbell employees is actively looking for a job. Campbell needs to change, or the next 10 years are not going to be a fun ride. What would you do if you were the CEO of Campbell? Welcome to the Mavens of Change podcast. I'm your host, Kunal Sarda. Our guest today is The Real Deal, a true business titan and legend, Doug Conant, whose professional resume certainly makes me question what I have been doing with my life thus far. Doug Conant is the only former Fortune 500 CEO who is a New York Times bestselling author and a top 100 most influential authors in the world. For the past 20 years of his leadership journey, Doug has led some of the most iconic companies, first as president of the Nabisco Foods Company, then as CEO of Campbell Soup Company, and finally as chairman of Avon Products. In 2011, he founded Conan Leadership, a mission-driven organization championing leadership that works in the 21st century. Earlier this year, Doug published his best-selling book, The Blueprint, Six Practical Steps to Lift Your Leadership to New Heights. Doug, it's an honor to have someone of your pedigree join us here. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Now, before we go into the story of change at the Campbell Soup Company, let's start with your own personal story of change. Tell me, Doug, how does someone go from being told by their boss you should go do something else within the first six months of their job to being fired from their first company to being asked to become the CEO of the Campbell Soup Company? What is Doug's story of change leading up to the year 2000? And you'd like all that in 25 words or less, Kunal? <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I would tell you, I was six months into my first corporate job working for the General Mills Company in Minneapolis. Didn't know anybody when I moved up there from uh, my graduate program at Kellogg School at Northwestern. And I was a fish out of water, never been in a corporate environment, was recruited in into brand management. And my first performance evaluation was six months in. And my boss's boss, who had to write one sentence just to acknowledge that he had reviewed my performance evaluation, chose to write, you should be looking for another job. That's all he wrote. And that was my wake-up call that I was uh, in the deep water. I was swimming with the sharks, even in Minneapolis, of all places. I'll tell you, I doubled down. I had to really focus. I had to work harder than most in order to catch up with much of the group. And I got into a predictable ascent in a good organization, an excellent brand management organization. And then ultimately, uh, nine years later, I was on my way to work one day and the receptionist, when I walked in the building, said, Doug, the senior vice president would like to see you. I went up to his office and he said, Doug, your job's been eliminated. You need to be out of here by noon. Nine years of my career was over in a snap. And uh, I packed up everything, went home, saw my wife, my two small children, and I was just thinking about my one very large mortgage, thinking, what now? Brene Brown has this great quote. She says, you can either walk inside your story and own it, or you can walk outside of your story and hustle for your worthiness every day. Love that. 
And quite frankly, I was hustling for my worthiness, trying to live out somebody else's story, trying to meet somebody else's needs. And I wasn't anchored in who I was and how I wanted to show up. I realized that I came from hardy stock, that we had capacity to do better as a family, and I had capacity to do better as an individual. But I had to be myself, and I had to figure out what that was, and then I had to start to show up differently. So you get fired from General Mills. You take a step back. Then you eventually move on to Kraft Foods. What was your role like when you exited Kraft Foods? I was really starting to get grounded in how I wanted to show up and how I thought I could make a difference and honor the people that I worked with. I went in in a brand management position, ultimately became director of strategy for Kraft, and worked pretty much directly on a dotted line, but pretty directly for the CEO, Jim Kiltz. Had a really good job. But at that point, I was tired of helping somebody else run it, and I felt I had developed my confidence enough to where I was ready to run things, RJR Nabisco called. It was at the time the world's largest LBO. KKR owned them. They were trying to reinvent Nabisco. A book was written about it, Barbarians at the Gate. And I had a chance. I was recruited to go in and run the smallest division there, but I was running something. So I decided to swim with the sharks and KKR for a decade. What was really cool about that is we turned the company around, we did it, and I found I could be myself in that difficult environment, and I could focus on building talent, developing people, and still delivering the numbers and performing. Love that story, Doug. At General Mills, when you exited, you were a team of one. When you exited Kraft Foods, you were probably leading a, a small team, I would imagine, as a director of corporate strategy. Then you exited Nabisco. How big was the company, Nabisco, when you exited? I ran the Nabisco Foods company, and that was about $4 billion in sales, and I want to say about 7,000 employees. So what is the biggest change you've had to make in how you manage and how you communicate? As you think back in time and you think about going from coming into Nabisco to eventually becoming president. When you get promoted to be a manager, you do have to walk and chew gum at the same time. You have to have an eye on the task, but you really accomplish all the work through the people. It's how you engage with them and how engaged you get them in their work that determines your success. As a leader or a manager, you have three years. The first year, it's the other guy's fault. The second year, it's our fault we're learning. The third year, you own it. So you got three years to make this thing work. Typically, you get grace the first year. So you got to get the table set and everything else. And, and, and so you got to make sure the standards are clear, but you also got to make sure you're doing everything possible to get the, the employees engaged. As president of Nabisco Foods, very early on, I just wanted to make sure that the teams that worked for me were representing the enterprise in as fine a way as they could when I wasn't in the room. So Doug, when you talk about walking and chewing gum at the same time. One of the other things you've said is you have a philosophy of being tough-minded on standards, tender-hearted with people. When did you build this as a management philosophy? My friend Jim Collins calls it the genius of the ant in his book, Good to Great. And he talks about the tyranny of the oar. Many of the managers I first worked with, and many when I was at RJR Nabisco and KKR, were either-or kind of leaders. What do you want me to be, tough or nice? And the answer is both. You know, you got to deliver the numbers. You don't have a choice. You won't have a job very long. 
But if you want to deliver the numbers in an enduring way, you're totally dependent on a team. And so you better be respectful of that team. And so I developed this perspective that about the genius of the end that Collins wrote, but I was thinking about it the same way before I ever read that in, I want to say, 2000. That's my philosophy. So, Doug, it's the year 2000. You've had a very successful run in Nabisco. Yeah. And you get a call from the Campbell Soup Company. At some point, you've also decided that you want to be a CEO by the age of 49. So this must have been a dream call. Who is Doug at this point when he gets a call from the Campbell Soup Company? Is he supremely confident in his abilities to be a CEO? Or does he have a bit of imposter syndrome, having never been a CEO before? I had a great run at Nabisco. The company I ran was the best performing food company in in the world the last five years I was running it. We were having a great run, sold it at a great multiple. I was incredibly proud of the team we put together. Many of them went on to be CEOs somewhere else. So I was riding high. I was feeling good. And I thought, I'm as prepared as anybody could be to be a CEO, having never been one. But I also know I've never been one. So I hit the ground running, but I was in unknown territory, arguably in over my head in terms of turnaround. I was betting on myself, but it wasn't a sure thing. So now we've walked up to the line for our story of change. It's the year 2000. Tell me, Doug, what is it like to be a shareholder, customer, and employee at the Campbell Soup Company? What's going well and what isn't? Typically, when you're recruited to be a CEO, things aren't going well. Usually, there's a problem. And usually, the CEO is left eight out of 10 times. So at this point, things were not going well for anyone. The company before I got there had been maniacally focused on creating share owner value, doing whatever it took to meet short-term needs to deliver earnings for a quarter at a time. And basically, the company had run out of tricks and everything was crashing down. The first they made some ill-fated acquisitions never fully integrated them, never spent the money to integrate them, pulled the cash out of them. And then when they started to go south, they started to cut the bread and butter of a consumer food company, which was the marketing and advertising budgets. And they cut those down to virtually nothing. And then the volume fell further. And then they said, we have too many people here. So then they cut a third of the R&D group in one day, and R&D is the lifeblood of innovation for a food company. And everyone had a story of how their budgets didn't exist anymore, how they were lost in a sea of doubt, how a friend to their left or their right had been let go. The share owners weren't happy. The customers weren't happy. They had bad customer practices, which had propped up earnings as well. Oh, and by the way, When they found they were having trouble with earnings, they said, well, we have to lean into productivity. So they started to literally take the chicken out of chicken noodle soup (laughs) to the point where the chicken noodle soup wasn't the same chicken noodle soup that we'd been selling for 100 years. And so product quality was compromised. Consumers weren't happy. Customers weren't happy. Share owners weren't happy. 
employees were miserable because they were trapped in it. And by the way, we we're headquartered in the poorest, most dangerous city in the United States, where we had a population of 75,000 people and 70 murders a year. There was a bullet hole in my window in the CEO's office. The facility was surrounded by razor wire with guard towers, ostensibly to make the employees feel safer. But when you drove in, you felt like you were driving into a minimum security prison. So, Doug, I have to ask, you've had a really successful run at this point as as president of Nabisco. Yeah, you have a goal to be CEO by 49, but it suffices to say Campbell isn't really doing so hot. Why did you say yes? And I ask this question because as managers, we're frequently told in the enterprise, don't sign up for a plan where you set up for failure. Sign up for a plan that is stretch, where you can still achieve and you can overachieve that plan. This did not sound like the turnaround of Campbell didn't really sound like a, an achievable plan. What made you say yes to this? Many of the leaders that you could study on the landscape, they all undertook impossible ventures. I think you have to have the eye of the tiger here. You know, you don't have to be perfect. You, you only have to be better than the, the last guy. And you have to be as good as the competition. And the competition isn't great. I think that gets overrated. And I think you have to have the eye of the tiger. I think you have to have confidence in your ability to move things forward. I was blessed that I was part of the world's largest LBO, which was beset with problems. It was like the wild west of of the corporate world at the time. So I felt, well, if I can make it work here, I ought to be able to make it work at Campbell in a publicly traded company and with a good board and a family that owned about half the stock and was very committed to the company. I was also very clear that I was going to do it my way. As I told the board when I took the job, if you can find somebody to do it differently, you should hire them because I'll be fine. But I had a vision for the company. I had a 10-year line of sight and I had adhered to my three-year rule. You got three years to get on track. I think the board found that appealing. So you having done what you did at Nabisco, having seen that level of entropy, gave you a lot of confidence that it couldn't be significantly worse than that or significantly more difficult than that. The other piece is, you know, if you think about performance and people, the two pillars that I think are so integral for any leader, you got to keep an eye on performance, but you got to have world-class talent. We had been able to recruit world-class talent into RJR Nabisco with KKR in a pretty speculative situation. And I knew I could recruit a world-class team. I didn't realize how badly I needed to at the time. So Doug, you're now at Campbell. Who has arrived at Campbell? Is it a wartime CEO or a peacetime CEO? I mean, it was war. We were fighting for survival. And we had to make a lot of tough decisions quickly. I'm a both-and guy. There would be moments in my day where I had to be the wartime CEO, and we're going to take that hell and we're going to do it now. But in that same day, I had to be making sure that my team was engaged and they knew I was paying attention. And I was bringing some humility to the conversation in order to learn. You've got to be pretty versatile as a leader. Ben Horowitz talks about the need to be a wartime CEO who cares about, quote, a speck of dust on a gnat's ass. 
if it interferes with the prime objective. A wartime CEO, Dwight Eisenhower, when he was in World War II, said most important attribute for an army in wartime is morale. And it wasn't being down to a gnat's ass on detailed specks of dust. It was make sure I got the right team on the field. It's all about the people. It's all about the people. And then you, you lead the company based on principle. And you also know what matters most. You know, there are key metrics and there are key things that have to get done. You know what matters most and you track it maniacally. You don't go down into the weeds. You get the right people to go down into the weeds for you. So you're now at Campbell and you said you've had a vision for how you'd like the company to evolve over the next 10 years. How did you build self-conviction around the plan? Did you use a lot of data? You frequently talked about listening to your inner voice and that a lot of managers don't really know their inner voice. How did you balance your inner voice for what needed to happen at Campbell versus what you probably were hearing from an army of consultants that were undoubtedly at your disposal? I was blessed. I worked in the food industry for virtually my whole career, so I knew the food industry well. It was a three yards on a cloud of dust industry, very competitive hard to get a lot of price. If you were with population growth, let's say it was 1% to 2%, and you could get 1% more in price, you could get 3 to 4%, then you could leverage your infrastructure smartly because most of these large food companies had great return on invested capital because all the assets have been depreciated. You could create a pretty attractive cash machine without doing anything crazy. But you had to do an incredible amount of due diligence in order to be able to convince yourself and the board and your executive team that this was doable, especially based on the fact that the prior management team had made it look like it was impossible. I looked at 30 years of value creation, and I found in each one of the decades, the people that had created the most value were the same people in each decade. And they were the same people over the 30-year period. And they were Wrigley Gum, Hershey Chocolate. Third one was McCormick Spices. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the big Unilevers or Crafts or everything, because they would go up and then they would come down. These people had enduring success models over a 30-year time frame, basically because they were number one in their category. The category had the wind at its back. It takes money to make money. So they had good cash flow and they had the ability to spend. And they had a somewhat fragmented marketplace in their area of expertise. I could look at Campbell and I could figure out that we have great cash flow. And if we can just get our volume going north with some marketing excellence and manage our productivity smartly, we can compete here. And it wasn't rocket science. I started at Campbell, January 8th. I took seven days off. And we had a a transformation plan for Campbell done by July for the analysts. And in those six months, we really did the due diligence necessary to make sure we had a vision that was good for the long term, but one that we could execute against in the short term. And I would say short term in our sector was three years. You've spent seven months building a plan, and I know you came up with a five-point plan that you presented to your shareholders, and we'll get to how you presented that. And you said there was nothing really crazy about it, but there is something really crazy that you did in the first three years in getting to that plan, which is you replaced 
300 out of 350 managers at Campbell's Soup Company. That is pretty crazy. So the question I have for you is, outside of building the plan, how did you arrive at the realization that um, such a massive change was needed in your management team at the Campbell's Soup Company to be able to hit any plan? I do not know of another large company that has made that much change ever. But obviously, it was something we felt we needed to do. It was somewhat easier because the company had been performing so badly, many of the best leaders had already left. Some of the people that were managing it, they were good managers, but they weren't the appropriate leaders for the enterprise for the next decade. The board understood that we needed to change. You talked about my five-point plan. One of those five points was to ensure organization excellence. I believe every strategic plan has to have a plank in it that's prominent, that is all about organization excellence, because absent an excellent organization, the other strategies don't matter. So we identified from day one that we needed to rebuild the team. In the first year, we made some select changes, and we were clear to everybody that they had to either get with the program or plan to leave or we would help them find a a role in the company that would work for them. They needed to get with the program of the transformation plan that we launched in July. And I think in the first year, and I don't think this is unusual, most of the people that have been there for a while are just waiting for you to fail. And so they're just going to say, oh, we'll see how you do. Well, you know, because I was approaching it in an unusual way, because I was big on performance and people. And I don't think many of the leaders didn't have confidence in me. So uh, I think they hung on for the first year and they saw that I was serious. We started tracking uh, employee engagement maniacally in year one and then year two and year three. And by year two, I had told all the leaders, if you're not lifting your employee engagement scores, you're at risk. I looked at every, every leader's employee engagement score and I wrote them each, all 350 of them, every year a letter. <laughs> about how they were doing and asking them how they were gonna be lifting their scores. I was all over like white on rice. It mattered, it mattered most from my perspective. So that's where I devoted a lot of time. By year three, they knew if they weren't not only delivering, meeting the standards of performance, but also developing their organization, they were at risk. Now we did replace 300 of the top 350. We did promote 150 leaders from within who were poised and ready and were anxious for the opportunity. They were sort of what I would call the young Turks who wanted to prove themselves. But we also hired 150 leaders from outside, which in three years is enormous. I'm probably most proud of those 300 leaders from inside and outside for the way they all came together and led the company then for the next eight years. 300 new senior managers in the course of three years. I have never heard of that before. And I I doubt that we will hear that again anytime soon. But the key question I have for you there is, if there were one trait that you were looking to be different, what's the one trait that you needed to be different in your managers to navigate Campbell through the next 10 years that you weren't finding on the bench? I'm going to cheat a little bit. I would probably pick the two that Jim Collins calls out in his Good to Great work, and he talks about level five leadership. He talked about humility, 
and fierce resolve that they wanted the enterprise to prosper so much that they wanted to learn everything there was to learn and not to be the person who knew everything, but to have a team that knew more than they could ever know and to harvest the learning from that team with great humility, but then who had the fierce resolve to see it through knowing that this is a performance sport and you've got to play through. You're competing against very well-heeled competitors. Food industry had great cash flow at the time, still does, and a lot of talent. So the two attributes I came to value the most, arguably, would be humility and fierce resolve. Doug, you've talked about your philosophy being unrelenting on standards, but kind-hearted with people. When you knew that there were so many changes that were being made in the leadership team, the management team at Campbell, a lot of these people were probably really good people that you really liked. What did that feel like to you, knowing that you were letting go of so many good people and having such a strong desire to be kind to people? How did you balance that? Not very well. I did the best I could. I think this is the gut-wrenching part of the work. As I got into it, I came to realize that We had 350 people that I was really focused on, but I had another 19,635 people who needed these 350 to make it work. So the rest of the company was counting on us, not just the leaders who I knew and liked. The board was counting on me. The share owners were counting on me. The customers were counting on me. All of the enterprise's stakeholders were counting on us to lift our game. And when I took a cold-eyed, realistic look at the capacity of our team relative to the other teams I knew about in the food industry, we weren't good enough. We gave them three years to get up to speed and show improvement. And if they weren't showing improvement by year two and then into year three, they were at risk. And we were clear about that up front. I felt like I was as out front with that as I could be. We tried to make sure everybody that left or left the leadership ranks and maybe moved into another role or left the company was adequately supported, tried to help them find other jobs. I was scared shitless, as uh, having never done it before, that I was going to blow the whole thing up by turning over all these people in a very competitive industry in a three-year time frame. It's like there's a reason nobody had ever done this before. It's not wise to do it. But I felt like we had no choice. What was really interesting to me, Kunal, was that I did employee engagement surveys every year for the 11 or 12 years I was there. Every year, I started to make more changes, and I was ready for the employee engagement scores to plummet. They actually were better. And what I came to realize was everybody in the company knew it needed to change. It just did you have the gumption to make the changes? All those employees knew they were working for mediocre leaders who weren't providing adequate direction, who didn't have adequate competence, who didn't display the kind of character necessary to get the job done in an enduring way, who were just hanging on. I discovered the more changes we made, the more engaged everybody else got. Wasn't that surprising to you, Doug, because I speak with a lot of CEOs today where there's someone really critical on their leadership team or management team who is underperforming. And the biggest concern about making a change there is employee morale. What happens if there's a lot of changes that are made really rapidly in a team? What are the rest of the people that are really engaged going to think? Was this a surprise to you on the other side? Well, I was surprised too, but 
there's another piece of this. The whole time I was making these changes, I was courting the other 20,000 employees. I was reaching out to employees. I became known for writing thank you notes. I had a two and a half hour commute to and from work. So I was in the car four to five hours a day. On the way home, I would read everything that happened in the company that day. It would be printed out from the portal. I would read everything that was going on well. And even in the most broken companies at Nabisco or Campbell at the time, well, the fact is eight out of 10 things are being done right. Nobody's acknowledging them. And it's a way of reinforcing standards, high standards. Like you over-delivered this, this new product in the first six months. Nice job. Or you advanced this initiative on time under budget. Great. So I was writing 10 to 20 notes a day, handwritten notes to employees. And they were going out the next day. They were getting these from me within 48 hours of when this news came out, celebrating their contributions. Do you think all my direct reports noticed that I was paying attention to all their direct reports and that all their direct reports were getting notes? They said, well, do you expect us to be writing notes too? And I said, no, but I do expect you to find a way that works for you to acknowledge the good work going on while we tear apart the stuff that needs to be torn apart. I expect you to do both. And my team quickly realized that they needed to be a part of the solution, not part of the problem. And so each one of my leaders found a way that made sense for them with their own style to reinforce what was going well while they were dealing with what wasn't going well. Love that. Tell me, Doug, you were obviously really tactical in getting down to the employee level and giving them that kind of reinforcement. But the other thing that you must have had to do was to constantly talk about the vision for the company, the 10-year vision for the business. In your first investor letter, you wrote, it is not enough to be an icon. How did you communicate around that within the company? What is the overall vision that you were setting for what the company looked like 10 years down the line that you could get these folks that were still there excited about? Because you were an icon yesterday didn't mean anything about today or tomorrow. And so we had to define what success looked like. And it was more than your legacy of contribution before you got there. It was about building an enduring enterprise and what it did take to build an enduring enterprise. And what I found in a well-heeled, established food company, if I go back to the analysis we did, there were certain criteria you needed to meet in order to have an enduring proposition where you were constantly adding more value and pricing appropriately. And one of the things I talked about on strategy was staying close to home will take you a long way. And it was not getting out over your tips. So we built a great continuous improvement operation, which was carefully managed. I also must say, you can't manage it if you can't measure. Part of the challenge for a leader is to bring great clarity. When you talk about tough-minded on standards, what are the standards? You have to be very clear about that. So we drove off a balanced scorecard and we had the board signed up for, that management owned, that every division and function owned. So we had this rather onerous process for getting everybody on the same page. At the same time, creating enough room for us to make agile changes as required. It was very clear what was expected. In the short term, and the long term, financially, in terms of market share, in terms of key projects, we had a balanced scorecard. And that sort of defines success. 
So now you're in 2004. You've made a lot of changes to your management team. You've put in a lot of standards and you have started to move towards your 10-year plan. What does Campbell look like and feel like three years in? What's the most different in 2004 than when you took over? Oh, the spring and the step of the culture. The motto uh, that the employees came up with when I first got there was Campbell valuing people, people valuing Campbell. And it grew out of my first meeting. This is my fundamental belief. We cannot ask you to value our agenda as a company until we have tangibly demonstrated to you that we value your agenda as an individual. By year three, they knew we meant it and that the people we were recruiting in and promoting were people who were competent, high character, world-class team players who were into turning around this very troubled company when nobody thought it could be done. And we were on a mission. So there was a spring in the step. We went from having the worst employee engagement in the Fortune 500, well on our way to, we were almost world-class in 2004. By 2005, six, and seven, we were then approaching the best employee engagement in the Fortune 500. When the financial crisis hit in 2008, 499 of the Fortune 500 company's stocks went down. There was only one company that actually held its value and went up, this little soup company in Camden, New Jersey. (laughs) We had a company that really had heart and spirit, knew what needed to be done and was doing it. What an amazing story of change, Doug. Last question for you here is, in hindsight, when you look back at those first three years, with this moment of change behind you, what do you wish you would have done differently in those first three years? I used to answer this question. I used to say I would have gone faster. And a lot of times when we all look back on things, it becomes so obvious what we should have done in hindsight. I've sort of turned the corner on this. I went as fast as I could go because you're bringing a whole organization along with you. I don't think I could have gone any faster or done any more. I, quite frankly, wouldn't have changed a thing. Would Campbell uh, have been as successful at the end of those 10 years, had you not made those changes to the management to the extent that you did? I don't believe so. Well, Doug, like I said, what an incredible story of change. It was an honor to have you here. Now we come to my favorite part of the podcast, which is what I call the rapid fire section. I ask you a series of questions and you answered these in 30 seconds or less. Here we go. You are an introvert. What's your number one hack for an introverted manager to be effective at leading a team? You've got to realize that people are not mind readers. You need to express yourself. And if you're an introvert, you need to bring a little structure to it. I have a process called declaring yourself. If you're uncomfortable, you got to declare yourself. People have to know where you're coming from. Us introverts tend to think people can read our minds. They can't. When they understand where you're coming from, they'll go where you want them to go. But you have to make sure they understand. I think you have to declare yourself. You've written 30,000 thank you notes during your time at Campbell, give or take a few. Tell me, what is the secret to the perfect employee thank you note? The perfect employee thank you note is genuine. And I always believe you focus on the performance because I'm trying to reinforce my performance standards. So most of those notes were not happy birthday or have a nice day, which I care about too. They were about nice job on this project. You delivered it on time under budget. Thank you. Or look, I see your employee engagement scores went up. Great job. So most of those thank you notes, 90% of them, 
were performance-based, celebrating contributions of significance and letting them know that I paid attention and that I was appreciative. So that's what I think the, the secret to a great thank you note is in the corporate environment. Today, OKRs are a very popular goal setting and performance management tool, especially in the tech industry. What do you believe about OKRs as performance standards that most managers might disagree with today? I believe that it's about people. Tasks matter. I had a balanced scorecard. I had key projects, tasks, timetables. We had all that. But ultimately, if I look back on it, it was the growth of my leaders that determined our success. When I think about it, I think about it's all about how am I going to help my leaders grow? My leaders grow, we grow. Last question, Doug. What is the biggest piece of advice you will give to a manager listening to this podcast who may be facing a seemingly unattainable plan or a large expectation of change, but may not have the authority or influence that you had as a CEO? I think Arthur Ashe has had it right when he said, you've got to do what you can with what you have where you are. I think you take your resources and make sure you optimize your contribution of those resources. You don't lament the things you don't have. You leverage the things you do have, and you do the best you can with what you have where you are. And if that doesn't work, they should probably have somebody else doing it. And you should go somewhere else where you can be more valuable. Not that. Maximize the value you're able to bring yeah, to the and Look, I had 28 bosses in my life. Three were good. 25 were fair to poor. And I don't think that's unusual. I think most of us can think about the people we've worked for and say there were a few really good ones who I learned a lot from, who had my back, who challenged me, made me better. But most of the time, that's not the case. You have to figure out a way to make it work in the environment you're in. And that's actually what our blueprint book is all about. You've got to be incredibly well anchored in who you are and how you want to show up because you can't count on the enterprise or the culture embedded in the enterprise to take you to the promised land. You've got to own your own development. Love that, Doug. Own your own success and own your own career. Well, like I said, I was so excited to have you on the show today, and you certainly did not disappoint me. I've learned so much, as I'm sure our listeners will as well. Doug, thanks so much for making the time here. You are a true maven of change, and we continue to look forward to your many ongoing successes in the years ahead. Thank you, Kunal. I'm happy to be here. What a story and what a legend this man is. Thanks for listening to the Mavens of Change podcast. This episode was brought to you by Aria. Aria brings science to the design, management, and measurement of workforce incentives that move the needle for businesses. Visit ariaworks.com to learn more.